This is an ABC podcast. This is Like Matters in NAM, Melbourne. I'm Hilary Harper. Great to be with you. Discovering that you have ADHD can bring quite a few different emotions. Relief for some, anxiety or shame maybe, grief at lost opportunities and perhaps some long-sought clarity. It is a complex journey for those with it and those who love them. And our understanding of it is still very much evolving, not just how it presents but what it takes for people who have ADHD to be in this world world. And getting a definitive diagnosis can take many years and a lot of money and mental and emotional effort. Does it need to be that way? Difficulty with focus, impulsive behaviour, racing minds, emotional intensity. There can be a lot going on for someone with ADHD or attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. It might feel like everyone has it at the moment. It affects about one in 20 people. And since the pandemic, a wave of adults, particularly women, have discovered that they have it. There's a parliamentary inquiry underway right now on how to meet the needs of people with ADHD and their loved ones because there can be big gaps in support. Lou Brown is with us today, a former ADHD coach, advocate and researcher, and she's developing an ADHD parenting program as part of her PhD. Lou, great to have you with us. Hi, lovely to meet you, Hilary. Thanks for joining us. And with us too, Professor Mark Belgrove, the Director of Research at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. Mark, great to have you here. Good morning. Uh, Mark's also the project lead for the Australian ADHD Professionals Association's Clinical Practice Guidelines for the Assessment and Treatment of ADHD. Uh, And we might have a check-in as this conversation develops about how well uh, we've kept up with the recommendations in those guidelines, which were released in October last year. Uh, Mark, there's been a lot of talk about ADHD lately, but what are we talking about exactly? Is there clinical agreement on what it is and what it looks like? Yeah, 100%. Um, You know, we have uh, very rigorous uh, diagnostic procedures uh, and methods for ADHD, and that's uh, principally outlined in our clinical practice guideline. That was a a major point uh, of the guideline, uh, was to sort of harmonise and unify uh, practices as best we can across Australia. So we absolutely have uh, a rigorous diagnostic methods and ADHD uh, as a diagnosis is as reliable uh, when made by qualified uh, professionals as, you know, any other medical diagnosis. Because it can present in quite a few different ways, can't it? It, it, it? Can you give us a sense of of what it might look like in any given individual? Sure. So a few listeners, uh, many may be aware that there are uh, two primary dimensions of symptoms that we talk about for ADHD. So someone can present with primarily problems of attention or inattention. So that's the type of distractibility that you spoke of at at the outset, problems focusing their attention, problems staying on task. The other side is the hyperactivity impulsivity dimension. So that's the sort of stereotypical child, I guess, who's constantly on the go fidgeting, squirming, can't stay in their seat, uh, all the way through to impulsivity, which is really having problems controlling uh, behaviour. And those two symptom dimensions give rise to three uh, primary subtypes of ADHD. So one can present with a predominantly inattentive subtype, a 
predominantly hyperactive impulsive subtype, or we can have what's called the combined type, which is features of both, both inattention and hyperactivity impulsivity. So fast. they're the three diagnostic subtypes. Hmm. I was really interested to uh, discover some new things that I had not learned about ADHD before, which is that people can also have uh, problems regulating their emotions and real trouble dealing with rejection. How common is that? Uh, it's pretty common. It's not a diagnostic feature in the sense that the problems of emotional regulation aren't diagnostic for the disorder. They occur uh, in many different conditions, but it is uh, very common, and it's a, a really an area of active uh, research, even within my own lab, uh, is trying to understand the presentation of emotional regulation problems uh, in people with ADHD, what it means at a, a neurobiological level. Uh, but it's really regarded as a coexisting uh, symptom for ADHD. Lou, just listening to Mark talk about all these different ways and modes of presenting for ADHD, you can see how it might be tricky to exist in the world that's meant for, oh, I guess, designed for people who can pay attention and focus. What's been your experience? What was it like, for example, growing up? How did you kind of understand your yourself in the world? Well, I didn't because I wasn't diagnosed. So my experience growing up was... Um, Hard. Like I was a kind of really active, creative, energetic child. Um, I was very impulsive, talked incessantly without a filter, made decisions on a whim, and I was really highly emotionally and sensitive. Um, and as a consequence, I found myself always in trouble. I, I really wanted to be liked. I really wanted to do the right thing. But it seemed like any time I was just being me, which was probably lost in my imagination, having a wonderful time. Um, I would do something wrong and I'd get in trouble. And that really affected my psychological well-being. I grew up feeling bad, stupid, broke, um, broken, like I was this naughty child. And it was like no matter how much I tried, it didn't matter. That pain would still somehow, you know, get to me. Um, and I had all the same problems that you see. Like it was when I read the information about ADHD after I was diagnosed. It was like reading my life trajectory on a page. It was really confronting. I'd had all the problems with friendships and navigating school and social situations, remembering important dates and information, managing my money. I had multiple car accidents. And as a result, I developed anxiety and depression as well as binge eating disorder and I became morbidly obese. And I started to self-medicate with alcohol as a means of coping. Um, gosh, I'm so lucky I've broken all that. Um, and yeah, I actually was at a stage where I wanted to end it all. Um, and it took me a long time to turn my life around, but it was like I achieved goals. I ended up being um, a clinical nurse specialist and I ran a whole hospital overnight and I became a stomal therapy wound care consultant and stuff. But there was always like this missing thing that somewhere along the line something would happen and trip me up and I'd go back into despair. I could never get hold of it until finally at um, 47 years old I was diagnosed and getting medication and understanding of how my brain work and um, things absolutely changed my life for the best. I I'd go so far to say it probably saved my life and I'm so grateful that I got diagnosed. Well, yes, and you mentioned luck, you know, feeling lucky to, to be rid of those really difficult coping strategies and obviously it shouldn't be based on luck. It should be more about the kinds of supports available to people. But, Luke, could you tell us just a little bit about how differently life is for you now that you can have access to treatment and medication? Before I 
didn't understand myself and I would compare myself to everybody else all the time and wonder why I couldn't do what they could do. And I also felt like I constantly let other people down, but I also constantly let myself down. So I would have, you know, say a goal or a value or something. And in the moment, my impulsivity or inability to stop and think, I would do something that went against that goal. And that was really, that's the hardest thing. You actually let yourself down, let alone everybody else down. And when I was diagnosed and I got medication, I took it for the first time, it was like this stop gap appeared where I could actually stop and think before I like the words came out of my mouth. What was really interesting is that although I could stop and think for the first time but never been able to before, at four to seven years old, I realised there was so much stuff I hadn't learned because I hadn't been able to stop and think before. So I found myself in situations going, I know how I used to respond isn't appropriate, but I actually don't know what to do. So I had to actually ask friends and people for advice on basic things of how to say no to this without offending someone or how should I navigate this situation. And I think it's because if you're not able to regulate your attention growing up, you just miss out on all the things that other people absorb normally. Yeah, that sense Um, of having got to miss the day at school where they handed out the rule book. Yeah, basically. And now I understand the rule book. doesn't mean that I can always use it very well. And medication doesn't fix everything, especially if I'm really passionate. I still find it very hard to regulate and not speak on top of people and things. And medication doesn't work 24-7. It certainly doesn't take all your symptoms away, but it is without it. I don't think anything else that I do would help. But I think living with ADHD, you have to do everything so much harder. You have to support everything. So I can't even as, like, I know at my age now, people go, oh, you all have to write things down. My whole life, I won't remember anything unless it's like I was, you know, had the brain of an old person as a young person because I couldn't remember anything. Um I have the appalling working memory. If I can't see it, it doesn't exist. I'm so highly scaffolded in the way that I operate and do things. Otherwise, things just, you know, fall down. And yet, we're going to um, Europe in three weeks' time and we discovered on – well, I discovered on the weekend my son's passport's expired. Oh, no. It's a typical – we've got time to get it done, but that's a typical ADHD thing. Like, you've got – I'm doing a PhD. I've got all this stuff, in, you know, that I do really well, but there'll be things that just, like, I forgot to pay my licence one year or, or I forgot to pay my registration when I was a nurse or there's – it's kind of like when you've grown up with so many mistakes, the effect they have on you starts to – um, grow so you can make a mistake and someone will say, oh, I've done the same thing. But they start to accumulate yeah. so you feel like you've made so many mistakes. Um, but I'm in an absolutely completely different place now than I was before diagnosis. Um <laughs> Well, and it's absolutely it's, changed my life. I can, I, I, it's ringing up uh, images of people I know and love with ADHD. It's like, yep, tick, yep, tick, yep, tick. That sounds very familiar. <laughs> and heartbreakingly, the, the difficulty too, the, the stress and the incredible amount of energy it takes to kind of bring yourself up to the level that the world expects people to function on. It yeah, really, really it takes exhausting. a toll. It's exhausting. Yeah, it really exactly. Is. And I don't think people realise that, you know, just when you take medication, like it kind helps even the playing field but you still have to actively support what people call your executive functions you can't just rely on it naturally it doesn't naturally happen for us and so that's a whole lot of work that you've got to make you know conscious um and you can't 
No one can do that 24-7. It's impossible, the amount of energy. And you'd be an anxious wreck all the time if you were trying to be perfect all the time. You've got to find some balance between acceptance and self-compassion and not trying to make yourself neurotypical, trying to figure out how do I live my best life with my qualities, you know? What can I contribute to the world as the person I am rather than... I need to be like everyone else. Um, Well, and I would love to hear from you if what Lou Brown is saying resonates with you, if this is something you've been through. And perhaps you can tell us how easy it was to get the diagnosis or or get some clarity about what was going on with you and get some help for it. And if the discussion is bringing up some difficult things for you, we heard Lou talk about how hard it got for her in some of her darker moments. I'll give out the lifeline number, 13 11 14. They can often forward you on to some really useful help that's specific to your situation. If you just want to have a chat, 13, 11, 14 is Lifeline. Uh, Kate, great to have you with us on the program. Welcome. Yeah, look, I was diagnosed um, about a year and a half ago by accident (laughs) um, because my son was diagnosed. And uh, when I was doing all the forms for him and, you know, filling out the questionnaires, I thought, wow, um, (laughs) this is looking familiar. And it it was sort of funny because it came at a time when my mum had recently passed away, so I was dealing with a lot of grief. And also I was going through menopause. And so I actually thought I was losing my mind um, and thought my mother had passed away from dementia. And I thought, crikey, I've got dementia. Um, And then when I started going through this process with my son and then I was with him at the psychiatrist when he sort of had the they kind of deep interview and interrogating his life. And I thought, uh, and at the end of it, I said, uh, Doctor, I think I've got ADHD. And he sort of said, well, that's really likely because your kids just got it, had a parent who have it. Um, so then it took me a while to get to get onto medication. Um, and uh, look, I mean, I mean, I went through a great deal of grief when I, I mean, it was a, a difficult time. My partner was also diagnosed with cancer. It was crazy. Wow. Um, and... <clears throat> I know. So I was sort of like in complete overwhelm mode. So then when I learned that, in some ways it was a massive sense of relief, but there was also a great sense of, you know, um, lost opportunity. You know, like I, I was at university, I've got friends and peers who've had really successful careers, whereas mine has kind of been this patchwork of really interesting things that I've really hyper-focused on for a little while until I wasn't so interested anymore or until I, I needed to get out because I couldn't really... Um, I always felt like a rabbit in the headlights, like I hadn't, um, um, you know, I hadn't done what I was supposed to do and I would beat myself up or I'd forget something or, I'd, you know, a deadline would go by and I'd forgotten it. And, and so I felt so self-critical um, that it was very, I found, you know, workplace really distressing and, and stressful. Um, and so often I would move on before... Um, you know, before I, I felt like someone's going to find me, I better get out of here. You know, and and it's and it wasn't like a lack of ability, like <laughs> in a sense that you know, fortunately, my brain has held me in good stead up until this time. But one thing that the psychiatrist said to me that diagnosed me was that um, in menopause you have a massive estrogen downtake and it intensifies the ADHD. So I literally had. You know, my clogs are turning but not fitting together and not actually functioning, you know. So this sort of brain that, um, uh, yeah, the brain that was sort of like lacking direction, sitting there in a kind of wobbling stasis but not, not actually doing anything. Wow. Terribly productive. 
coping. So it became, yeah, really quite difficult, yeah. That's really so, interesting, Kate. Thank you so much for your call because a theme that's emerging from your story as well as speaking to Lou Brown before was that, uh, you know, people achieve on a lot of things. <laughs> it's not like there's a, a a lack of achievement going on. It's just the, the effort that it takes to do that. And um, as you've said, that sense that you're very critical of yourself in the world for failing to live up to particular expectations. one three hundred double two double five seven six is our talkback number. We're speaking with Lou Brown, who is a former ADHD coach, advocate, researcher. She's developing an ADHD parenting program as part of her PhD. And Professor Mark Belgrove, Director of Research at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash Uni. He worked on the clinical practice guidelines for the assessment and treatment of ADHD, uh, much of which is uh, coming up in the stories we're hearing on our talkback line today. Let's go to Sarah in Brisbane. Sarah, your daughter has ADD, I understand? Yes. So she doesn't have the hyperactivity, um, but the uh, uh, executive function is her issue. And what was it like finding that out, working it out? Um, Look, it took... um, She was 11 when she finally got diagnosed. Um, The school didn't believe us because she didn't exhibit any of the behavioural issues. Um, uh, But... Her emotional regulation, her relationships were um, really fraught and difficult for her. Um, At 11, she was still tantruming most days and we as a family were going out of our mind thinking, what the hell is going on? What are we doing wrong? You know, even going as far as going, what is wrong with our child? Which is a horrible position to be in. Um, And uh, when she finally got diagnosed, it changed her life. The medication just overnight, she went from a child with all these issues to a much calmer child. Um, We never told her she was ADD. Um, She could identify she had memory issues um, and we told her that medication was to help her memory. Um, We just didn't, because she also has a diagnosis of dyslexia as well. Um, So we didn't want any more stigma or adult um, labels attached to her. That's, um, a, that's a question, Sarah. How much stigma do you feel is is around, perhaps in the school community and, and your community? Oh, significant amount of stigma. Um, when she was diagnosed, I cried for the whole weekend. I, I thought, what have we done wrong as parents? Um, you know, and we'd ridden her so hard, you know, for all these years. Like, why can't she remember an instruction between the kitchen and the bedroom? Um, and it's like, you know, we were constantly butting heads with her. And she, and then we realised it wasn't that she was being naughty. She just didn't have the capacity without the medication to achieve simple instruction. So that must Everything have made you feel terribly more. guilty, Sarah. Terribly, terribly guilty. But there's also the stigma as a parent, I think, um, because that there's that cliched concept around um, only bad parents have children with ADD. Um, I remember watching 60 Minutes as a child, God help me, um, but them talking about how it's got more to do with bad parenting than anything else and over-medicating children and things like that. So... Um, overcoming that and realising that um, giving her the opportunity to try the medication was actually about her and I need to move past the stigma attached to me or us as parents in order for her to achieve 
the best outcomes, but then came the guilt, as I said, yeah. where it's like we've been asking this child to do all these things and she's not been naughty. She just, her mind was racing at a million miles an hour. Yeah, yeah. Well, Sarah, top marks to you for being able to arrive at that point. And thank you so much for sharing it because, as you've said, it's a really hard thing to go through with your family. one three hundred double two double five seven six is our number if you'd like to join in this discussion. What would be helpful in the community or in uh, clinical practice for supporting people with ADHD and their families. What do you think needs to change? Professor Mark Belgrove, a couple of quick questions came out of that for me. How common are comorbidities, other issues that go with ADHD, such as dyslexia that uh, we heard about there or or other things? Yeah, look, uh, very common. Uh, In ADHD, we we usually uh, talk about uh, comorbidity as the rule rather than the exception because in childhood uh, and, and adulthood there are a range of uh, comorbidities. Uh, dyslexia and other uh, learning uh, difficulties in childhood you know, are very common um, and you know, require uh, careful diagnosis and careful, careful management, definitely. There's the, a couple of other yeah. points I might... Can I pick up on a couple of other points? For sure. Very, uh, from your call-ins. Uh, the, the first uh, woman that called in... Uh, spoke about uh, her ADHD uh, symptoms sort of effectively uh, being exacerbated during menopause. Okay, um, that's right. This, okay, thanks. This is something we're starting to hear quite commonly now uh, reported by uh, women either that the symptoms change or exacerbate uh, during these periods or that the medications become uh, less effective. And I think this is a, a really nice example where the great greater awareness of uh, ADHD in the media starting to bring forward interesting uh, descriptions uh, from people with lived experience because there's almost no empirical literature uh, relating to this. Uh, we know that oestrogen has important interactions with dopamine in the brain. That's very important for uh, ADHD in the way we regulate uh, ourselves. But at, at this point, we have almost no empirical data uh, relating to this important phase of life uh, for women. And really, it's a, a, a great example of where the, the research literature uh, is lagging, you know, sadly behind. Uh, and one of the reasons we really want uh, involvement in uh, of women in our research studies, but also uh, girls all the way through to women and even older uh, women, uh, because we just lack so little data because of our I guess, focus uh, on boys and men across the lifespan uh, thus far uh, in research for ADHD. Yes, Lindy's texted in saying, I was diagnosed last year at the age of 63. My life has been transformed. It took three years and about $2,000. I was interested to learn the hyperactivity part can also relate to brain activity rather than physical, especially in females. And she says, thanks for doing the program. Mark, one more quick question. Uh, A text message popped in saying, every second person has ADHD at my work are we over diagnosing it and are we pathologizing poor concentration concentration is a skill adhd is becoming an explanation for so many things mark what's the research say about the uh, likelihood that we are over diagnosing adhd yes so this is a a common uh, misperception uh, in my view you could probably fill a whole hour just on this uh, topic Uh, so there's two interrelated uh, issues there so let's deal with um, attention as a, as a skill. So we, we know that attention uh, is uh, a trait that you can imagine varies in the normal population, varies continuously. Some people are excellent at paying attention. 
other people have uh, difficulties. So too uh, hyperactivity and impulsivity. In fact, these traits uh, that are linked to ADHD really are uh, dimensional traits in this sense uh, par excellence. And what we call ADHD is the extreme end of this uh, continuum. And the critical thing is that people who have ADHD, not just they don't just have elevated symptoms, those symptoms are having a functional impairing impact on the person's life. So everyone might identify, well, not everyone, some people might identify as having symptoms, but the point is that you cannot achieve a diagnosis of ADHD unless those symptoms are having a really, really impairing uh, impact on a person's life of the type that Lou spoke to, Kate spoke to, uh, the, the lady with her daughter. So I think that's an important point. So we're not just pathologizing uh, different levels of attention. We're looking for problems of attention and in impulsivity and hyperactivity that have a really impairing impact on the individual. My the second point, point yeah, uh, yeah. really relates to are we overdiagnosing? This is something uh, that we hear a lot uh, in, the, in, the, in the media of ADHD. In childhood, uh, our latest data would suggest that in ADHD, we're probably about right in terms of our uh, diagnosis. That is, our rates in Australia are what you'd expect uh, by international uh, population prevalence data. Uh, and the medication rate is about what, also what you'd expect. In adulthood, though, uh, we are definitely lower in Australia uh, than what we would expect based on a 2.5% population prevalence from international data. So we're probably we under-diagnosing. That's right. And we're also uh, under-treating in terms of the medications based on uh, data that's uh, coming out as well. So I think it's important to deal with the, the hard data with ADHD, probably, you know, more than perhaps any other condition at the moment because we really want to get it right. Otherwise, we fall back into this trap of stigmatising, uh, which, as Lou and others uh, will tell you, you know, is really, 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 really uh, hard on people with ADHD and really, uh, you know, really puts their mental health at risk. Yes, our text message line is bearing that out, I can tell you. Mark, just quickly, why has there been an uptick in diagnosis in the past year, particularly from adult women? Well, I think there's probably a range of uh, reasons for this and Lou will probably attest uh, to this as well. Uh, certainly, uh, there's been uh, a lot of uh, attention focused on ADHD uh, over the last few years in Australia, including a lot of the work we've we've done ourselves in uh, in pro providing evidence for uh, ADHD and the best ways to diagnose and treat. But also, there's just been an increased, uh, I think, acceptance of ADHD and people feeling more comfortable to come forward uh, with their own experiences of it. I think the fact that uh, more often or not, the media reports have been about women with ADHD. Uh, tells you something quite instructive. I think that these uh, women have struggled uh, probably through, you know, childhood, adolescence, and then into adulthood, uh, and finally have uh, realised that ADHD can be an explanation uh, for some of their difficulties. And I think that awareness uh, is leading them or driving them uh, to come out in the media because they don't want other girls and women uh, to suffer uh, similarly as, as they have. But from my perspective, it's, it's a very positive development.
We're looking at ADHD in our community today. What kind of supports are still needed? What kind of help were you able to get if you had to try and get a diagnosis for yourself or a loved one? How much did it cost? How long did it take you? What would have been helpful? Professor Mark Belgrove works in this space and has done for some time. He's the Director of Research at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. He worked on the clinical practice guidelines for the assessment and treatment of ADHD that came out in October last year. And Lou Brown is with us today, a former ADHD coach, an advocate and researcher. She's developing an ADHD parenting program as part of her PhD. And we're looking at all the different issues that adhere to the, the experience of having ADHD in the world we live in today. Very excited to hear your experiences as well. Gary, in Yarraville in Victoria, a recent diagnosis, I understand. How has it gone for you? Uh, look. Thank you. Look, it was a real uh, revelation. I, it was probably about eight years ago. I'm 63 now. And um, my son was in year nine, or so eight years ago. And um, he was sort of diagnosed then. Teachers sort of alerted, alerted us to something going on. And it was only when you, as you do as a parent, you start researching. I'd only ever heard the word before. I didn't really understand anything. And I thought, oh, my God, why didn't I know about this decades ago when I was at school? And so um, that's when it all opened up and I got my own diagnosis, yeah. And but it was funny. Can I just say, when yeah, yeah. I, I just jumped in the car, turned on the, you know, the radio came on and the first thing I heard was Lou saying, and my children's passports expired. And I thought, oh, they're talking about ADHD. That was, <laughs> that's how I knew the subject was on, yeah. Wow. Because I did the same thing. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like it's been similarly revelatory for a lot of people. Oh, that's what's going on with me. Gary, thanks for your call and all the best for the family. Jason is in Melbourne. Hi, Jason. Hey, how are you going there? Cool. Now, you've, you've had a bit of a roller coaster with diagnosis. Tell us. Yeah, as a kid, um, I was uh, booted out of school because I couldn't concentrate and thought I was a bit of a dummy and all that sort of stuff and went to several schools. Um, I was diagnosed with, a, I think it was ADHD back then. I was put on a medication, I could tell you the medication, but I'm not sure if it's necessary to tell you that or not. That's all right. Uh, then basically into my mid to late 20s, I went off the medication and I self-medicated um, with alcohol and marijuana. And I'm in my 50s now and I've been trying to get in to see a specialist for the last 18 months because this problem doesn't go away. Um, but even my doctors are finding it very, very difficult to get me an appointment anywhere. It's just I don't know where to turn. I've got the referrals. Um, I know I've, I've got every every symptom that's been talked about today on the radio, for example. Um, they're all my symptoms. I wasn't going to ring in, but then I, I thought I'm going to ring in um, because I'm just shocked about how hard it is um, to try and find a specialist. Like, and yeah. it's just you know, um, it's a horrible problem to live with. Um, anybody that's had this problem, like uh, some of your listeners. Um, it's just a horrible, you know, horrible problem to live with. Well, and Jason, people talk about how hard it is living with ADHD to try and make the appointments, keep the appointments, follow up on the appointments, get the reports, all those executive function uh, necessities that, that need to go into that. And then to still be frustrated with it is so hard. Thanks for your call and all the best with it. I was reading today about a family uh, with a child with ADHD in Tasmania. There was no one to help them there, so they had to fly to New South Wales and then they got a prescription 
prescription in New South Wales that the Tasmanian health system wouldn't let them fill. So they're in negotiations now about that. But that sounds like a pretty difficult situation, pretty untenable. You're listening to Life Matters on ABC RN. Uh, Jensine's in Melbourne. Hi, Jensine. Another later in life diagnosis. Oh, hi. Hi, Hilary. Yeah, uh, my GP uh, a few months ago said, oh, yeah, Jetsine, you've definitely got ADHD. We were talking about it. And, um, of course, that's an informal diagnosis because it's not through a psychiatrist. Um, uh, everything that's been talked about, I can say all of, all of, all of that. Yes, exactly. Um, my husband is dyslexic. Both of our sons are dyslexic. And our younger son is also ADHD and 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 dyspraxic, and um, he struggled at school. We were in America. We were transferred to America for a couple of years. I got him diagnosed there. His boarding school GP refused to acknowledge that that ADHD existed. He was on medication. He went off it. Then he went back on it for exams, and he went on it again later when he was um, doing some other exams as a as a 18, 19-year-old, just for the month of the exams and passed his exams. Um, he um, eventually went back to uh, university here in in Australia and got a 2A honours degree um, on the back of having learnt how to work in a workplace. But he's now looking at uh, getting medication for his ADHD again. And I'm looking at my life and my complete inability to remember anything. Age 72, I keep on looking back and seeing that my friend said, Jensine, you you could never remember anything. I used to stand people up for lunch dates. I mean, you know, goodness gracious, how can you do that? Um, and, you know, Jensine, you've always had a rubbish memory. But at 72, of course, it's becoming much, much more problematic um, well, and and Jensine, I don't know as you whether say, I can actually whether I can actually get onto the you know the, the the diagnosis thing seems really difficult, and whether I can get onto medication at my stage of life, I don't know. Well, let's find out in a moment. But I, I was struck by what you said about you know how can you do that? How can you forget a lunch date with someone? It's in the interpretation, isn't it? Because it's not like you hate your friend. It's, oh it's no, a, and my friends were very tolerant. Yeah, but and it's a used, problem with you. They used to actually memory. ring me up and tell me, Jensine, we're having a meeting for lunch in half an hour. Don't forget. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I mean, these are really good friends. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yes, it, it's. Uh, uh, I'm struck by that because we were talking before about the stigma and people can interpret that behaviour in different ways. And if they understand that that's just the way you are and it's not personal, then that's great. But for a lot of people, it can really affect their relationships. Mm. I want to put your question about the medication to Professor Mark Belgrove, Jensine. So thank you for calling. Uh, Mark and um, Lou, I want to talk to you about the process of assessment too in a moment but uh, Mark we've had a lot of texts about medication you know is it being overused who does it work for why does it not work for some people I wonder if I can kind of throw all those to you in in one little handy package (laughs) one very large handy package yeah exactly (laughs) Um, look uh, medication well let's 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 deal with it uh, attempt to deal with it uh, systematically so medications for ADHD uh, what many of your listeners will know as psychostimulant medications. Uh, so they're medications that primarily uh, stimulate dopamine and noradrenaline in the brain, uh, which we know are very uh, helpful uh, for being able to uh, pay attention. Uh, does it work for everybody? Uh, no, not everybody, but uh, data would suggest that perhaps 70 80% 
of people will benefit uh, in a positive direction uh, from these uh, medications. Does it work for older adults, perhaps? Uh, your previous listener might be uh, wondering, or, or can older adults with ADHD be uh, diagnosed and treated with medication? Uh, yes, they can. Uh, the data in older adults is not perhaps as strong as uh, in younger, uh, younger people and adults. We do talk about it in our ADHD guideline, uh, but interestingly, there's now a new guideline being developed by uh, the American Professional Association, which is specifically uh, focusing uh, on ADHD in older adults. So that's going to be a really, uh, I think, important development uh, in that space. Yes, indeed. Well, I'll just read you one representative text. I have a son with ADHD. I raised him without medication. The trouble is society's expectations, not the unique individuals who are great the way they are. The stress for parents and kids comes from society. But we've also been hearing how life-changing medication can be for some people as, I think, part of a suite of uh, treatment options. I noticed the clinical practice guidelines say, look, we should start with education and then we should move on to other things, perhaps cognitive behavioural intervention, uh, adjustments at work and school. It's a whole range of things, not just medication. It actually comes quite a long way down the list. Lou Brown, you went through the assessment process for both yourself and your son, which is not an uncommon path for families, I understand. What was it like in each case? Um, do you mind if I just say to Kate and Sarah sure. that I completely relate and that menopause actually made me feel like I also had dementia and I went to the doctor to find out if I did and that was before I was diagnosed because oh. it had such an impact on me. Um, and also when people query ADHD medication and, the, and even the condition exists, it validate, invalidates the experience of all of us people who have been through this trajectory and it actually is really painful. I would prefer not to have ADHD, but it is what it is. So I need to do what I can to live my best life and I deserve to live my best life and if that takes medication so be it and my son deserves to live his best life and if that takes medication so be it as well it can be a really disabling condition and all these questions about whether it's valid and if we're over medicating kids has a real impact on people who have the condition who are living with it it's um it's really unkind and it's time to listen to people with ADHD who have been living and struggling with the condition and stop invalidating their experiences. I imagine, I mean, it seems like there's some anxiety about uh, medicating children, but as you say, there's a lot of information out there, there's a lot of research, and we're hearing these stories today that suggest that it can really, really help some people. Uh, it actually transformed my, my son transformed in front of me. I was going to school, scared to go to school of what they were going to say next, and I knew my son was actually a really nice kid, yeah. and that he just struggled to regulate. And I also knew that when people would say about my parenting that no one was doing more than I was doing. And I was probably doing... Um, like listening with empathy and validating his experiences and trying to have everything in place to help him without me. I was very conscious of not hurting his self-esteem because of what had happened to me growing up. And he, when he had medication, it's like he could do all the things that I've been trying to teach him and without it, he couldn't. So it's really unfair. So if you're sitting in a classroom and you can't focus like everyone, it's not an even playing field. You don't know what you're missing. And I've heard so many adults say to me that, because I wasn't um, causing trouble at school, I was just, you know, um, unfocused, mm. that I wasn't given medication. 
and that they're actually quite resentful of it because they really feel that they missed out so much so, um, because Lou, they hadn't got it. I was reading how it, it can take quite a long time for people get to get an assessment, an average of three and a half years for families in Australia, and then even longer to get services. What was it like for you and, and your son? How long did it take and how much did it cost? Um, well, it was about seven years ago, so the situation wasn't quite so bad. I... Um, it was re- what was really hard is identifying he had ADHD. So we were going to school and they were saying things, you know, like it was because my husband and I had split up and he was going between different families or I wasn't, you know, parenting like my, you know, strong enough and having these boundaries. And I knew all that wasn't, you know, the case. So getting it recognised was hard. And eventually went to school one day and said I'd heard about this condition and that I'm really sure that my son meets it, can we have a psychology um, assessment? And it came back as, you know, him having, um, you know, these, these challenges related to ADHD and I went to the GP and the GP said to me, do you know, um, ADHD runs in families, you know, and it's like, well, you've got it too. I went, what? And it was really, for me, the hardest part in all the journey was coming to terms with it all because I was at that stage so terrified that my son was going to have my old life, that the grieving process and that support I needed to come to terms with it was missing. There was no real understanding of, like, the grief that you can go through and the support that you need. And so my son, we... I, I think it took about four months at that time to um, get an appointment. I basically rang around to see who had the quickest appointment and I had already been seeing a psychiatrist and I'd been diagnosed with depression for over 17 years and still not diagnosed with ADHD. So it was easier for me to go and see somebody because I was already in the system. But I know that that situation has completely changed now, that there are people that um, just... You know, it's a year. A lot of people have their books closed. Mm, um, yep. You know, it's and the situation between when you're if children starting to like when you get to a certain age and you can't be under a paediatrician anymore and you need to go and see a psychiatrist. There's just not enough psychiatrists out there that understand and support people with ADHD. So there's a really big problem at the moment with accessing services. Yes, it's a system-wide problem, isn't it? I want to just bring that quickly to Mark. I I can see the time ticking away from us and there's so much more I want to talk about today with you both. Uh, Mark, we can see then if there are those difficulties with accessing assessment, why self-diagnosis might be an increasingly attractive thing. Is that a problem? Yes, it is a problem uh, in my view. Um, You know, we all know uh, the examples on TikTok, for example, that uh, many listeners might have seen of, uh, you know, do a rating scale and diagnose yourself with ADHD. But really, uh, as I've said before, uh, you need to have a very careful assessment of the impairment associated with those symptoms. And really that requires... Uh, a highly uh, trained uh, professional who's able to sit and do a very thorough interview with the person. And and as all your listeners have uh, described, uh, the complexity of ADHD and the comorbidities, the coexisting conditions, really add uh, to the difficulty. Uh, And so it may be that you don't need to just see uh, one person. So, for example, if a child presents with dyslexia, and other learning difficulties, they may need to see a, a, a psychologist, a neuropsychologist, an educational development psychologist, but they all also may need to see a paediatrician. And, and so, you know, in my own view is 
that we need to have much less siloing uh, of treatment uh, and much more interaction between the discipline areas so that we can get, uh, you know, a better assessment of all the complexity uh, that goes into ADHD uh, so that we can help people uh, to have better outcomes for their life. Yes, I understand multidisciplinary teams and much more access within yep. the public uh, sector, health sector, is strongly favoured uh, within um, the, your field, Mark. What else do we need? What kind of treatment and support gaps are there at the moment for people with ADHD that you'd like to see filled? Well, certainly just to, to clarify that, um, you know, children uh, and adolescents can get uh, some help within the public health uh, system, but once they tip over into adulthood, adult ADHD is almost entirely uh, treated, diagnosed and treated uh, within the private health system. And that's probably uh, where most of the cost is accruing for your uh, listeners and, and folks with ADHD uh, living with Australia. So look, I th- my, own, my own view is uh, we do need a much better uh, public health system that is uh, skilled, educated, uh, and able to diagnose uh, and treat and support folks with ADHD. I think we do need to develop uh, ways in which we can offer a multidisciplinary uh, care. Uh, I think the reality is we're going to need some more research on the appropriate care models and some evidence that the way we configure these care models actually has a, a beneficial effect for folks with ADHD, uh, is cost-effective uh, and is feasible uh, to do so. I think that will uh, be a, uh, will be very important, and I think it will have very positive outcomes in terms of the quality of life for people with ADHD. Just quickly, Lou Brown, I noticed a system review on the unmet needs of people with ADHD isolated quite a few key needs, uh, treatment beyond medication, much better uh, education and training for everyone involved, uh, patients, teachers, clinicians, parents, improved access to clinical services, support and financial assistance, and much greater consumer and community health literacy, but also school support. If I could just get you to... Uh, talk to that particular point. What's needed in schools, Lou, to better support kids and families with ADHD? Um, I think it starts with training, right? um, When people are you know, at university studying or learning to become a teacher, there needs to be neurodiversity training, including training on people with or how to support students with ADHD. There is a real lack of understanding. There is still such a behaviourist approach in um, education, which is really damaging to kids with ADHD because focusing on behaviour isn't accurate because what you actually see the presentation of these kids is symptoms. They're symptoms of their um, condition. And so to try and punish or reward them just sets them up to fail because it's like you can't get a baby to walk when they haven't developed the ability to. So even if you, you know, string carrots in front of them, they still can't do it. It's a little bit like that. So then we're judging these kids because they're not able to do things. So there needs to be a lot more understanding and assistance. While all the support things like, you know, breaking things down into manageable pieces, and you can do so many things like giving a child with ADHD a worksheet and cutting it into pieces so they don't get overwhelmed and they see little bits at a time. Um, Having an environment which is full of praise and encouragement and inbuilt rewards and things. One of the most important things is, you know, helping a child with ADHD feel validated, safe, heard and like they belong and that you really like them. So 
that's actually the, probably the biggest motivating factor that you see with most people with ADHD is that we're trying to do the right thing. And if we feel safe with you, we're going to have less anxiety and more likely to get the dopamine to be able to, you know, engage and do you know, what you, you know, what's being asked of us. But if we're feeling not like that and we're bored and stuff, it's really, really difficult. So a, a lot more education and understanding. And I'm, I know Mark knows that I've said this a million times. I do believe that the way that we provide education on ADHD needs to change. We've been doing the same thing for a long time and it hasn't worked. And we need to step into the space where we help people really understand and internalize what's going on. So you can actually, you know, try and figure out what's going on for this child and actually ask them as well. So then you can scaffold those challenges rather than just, oh, this child's got no ability to be organised. Well, well that's that doesn't really help. Yeah, know? and it really speaks to this text that's just come in, Lou. ADHD is a gift as well as a burden. Let's talk about the gifts. And Lou, I noticed that one of the frontline treatments for ADHD mentioned in the clinical guidelines is education, informing the person about the condition from a strengths-based perspective. How yeah. often is that happening, that people with ADHD are told about their strengths that come with them, their condition? It's actually increasing. Um, I have a lot of concerns about when people say, and this, this um, person has um, phoned in or texted hasn't, that ADHD is, you know, is a gift and that's it. Because it Basically, it's like positive toxicity. It validates the experience of most of the people with ADHD, so they feel worse about themselves. And it sets the person with ADHD up to, you know, when they fail, to feel really bad because they haven't, you know, acted like someone who's got this, this gift. We want to sit in the middle with realistic optimism where it is what it is. You know, we have our strengths and we have our challenges, but they are what they are. So how do we live more successfully um, with them? And there's been a lot of push in the research recently to look at, you know, strengths and things. And I think it's starting to filter through. Even in the clinical practice guidelines, there's a lot of mentioning um, on, you know, helping somebody recognise their strengths and supporting their strengths. If you've got an interest-wide brain because um, your interest is highly um, connected to how much dopamine that you have in the neurosynapses in in your brain and that's where we you know we have low amounts and medication actually helps to boost that if you're doing things that you're interested in if you've got buy-in especially if it's heartfelt then you get more dopamine and it's easier to do those things but if you don't and you're bored even with medication it can still be really difficult so it, it has a lot right and you always if you foster someone's strengths they can shine. If you try and get someone to, you know, change the challenges that they have, you don't get very far. You just leave them feeling bad about themselves. So don't try and change them. Learn to scaffold them. Learn to support them so they no longer get in your way and use your strengths. And that's how you thrive. That's how everybody thrives. Yeah. You mentioned um, scaffolding. Yeah, before real, Lou and I, I was wondering yeah. what your phone reminders look like. <laughs> Giant <laughs> list. <laughs> I relate. Yeah. Um, I want to read you a text to yes, 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 training in education. My 20-year-old son with ADHD and dyslexia is studying teaching so he can help kids like him. But he's about to drop out because he can't manage the executive function elements of the course, including everything being online and having hardly any connection with real humans and teacher supports. So as you said, I've it's about that, that scaffolding and, and chunking things into manageable chunks and uh, adjustments in the workplace and in the classroom. I want to get to a couple, maybe one more call before we have to wind up for the day. Genevieve in Hughesdale, welcome to you. Now we had a discussion before Genevieve about the pros and cons of medication and you went down the non-medication route. How did that go for you? 
it, it was it was good, um, but you know, I, I would be the first one to say that it's um, you know absolutely determined by the child and what what they need. So I'm not um, judge, and, and we were just lucky in, in some ways because I think that uh, it did um, produce results for us. But I would never judge anyone who uh, who went down the medication route because, uh, as um, your, the person on your program said, or Lou said, um, you know, it, it's very much about um, accessing the best part of yourself that you can. Uh, and that is leads to my other point, which as a parent, um, you really need to look at, at the child who has come to you and, and not think, oh, you know, they're like me or they're like their father or they're this or that or the other. See really who they are, what they're doing, what it is that they need, and always realize that if there's something going on with them, there's always a reason. It's not because they choose to be naughty. It's not because they want to do this or that, because that's when stigma comes in. There's always a reason for some of their behavior, which means that it's your role at that point to investigate and to educate and to educate those around you and the teachers. So that's why it took my son to be diagnosed just before he went into school, because at that point I realized there was actually something that perhaps we could do because I was an inexperienced parent. He was my firstborn. I just thought he was... You know, I didn't know, you know, much about children at that point. But he didn't have fine motor skills and he was very impulsive. And when he went into a stimulating environment, that's when he would go off and he would leap onto children and he would race around the place. So the school that he went to recognised that also and they, we already had the diagnosis. So they would take him out of the classroom and set him to a task of, of um, you know, winding wall or something like that, take him away from the stimulating environment, give him a task that he could be praised for at the end and thereby um, remove the stigma of his behaviour and also help to get his brain back on track. And then the therapy that he did was to break the midlines, uh, the vertical and the um, horizontal midline, so that both sides of his brain could communicate at the same time. And that meant that it, it increased his concentration. So then he was able to um, go on and focus on things, and now he's um, he went on to um, university and um, and become a lawyer, and he's now working in a pretty sort of high flying position. That's he still fantastic, has some- Genevieve. We have to finish for today, I'm afraid, but it's wonderful to see that those teachers have really worked out the dopamine connection there and the interest based connection and praised what they can. Look, we could have talked for hours today. Our text line, our phone call line, both chockers still at the end of this hour of discussion. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. I think they've really illuminated ADHD for our listeners. Thank you to our guest, Lou Brown, former ADHD coach, advocate and researcher. And Professor Mark Belgrove is the Director of Research at the Turner Institute for Brain and Mental Health at Monash University. On our next episode, Anzac Day. It means vastly different things to different people. And it's fascinating to learn that the way we commemorate it has changed dramatically over the decades. Ideas about it being the birth of our nation, an imperialist mistake, a valuable time for national grieving or an outdated institution have all ebbed and flowed and even coexisted at different points in the Australian imagination. On Life Matters Next Time, historian Dr Carolyn Holbrook will explain the evolution of how we commemorate Anzac Day. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.